a gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. In today's episode of Project Recovery... The night that I reached out for help on my Facebook video, that night, primary children said, we don't have a bed for her. We have too many kids in the same situation. The doctor said that they had about 10 kids that day, that night, in the in the unit who had attempted suicide. The wow. next day, they said they had about another 10. I'm like 20 and 24-hour period of these kids that are coming in here. Make sure you listen to the end. Find us on Facebook at Project Recovery. We'll have that and much more coming up. Welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery, and it's brought to you by our friends at KnowYourScript.org. they got a big take-back night coming out. For more information, go check them out at KnowYourScript.org. And uh, they've also got ways to talk to yourself, to talk to your doctor, to talk to your loved ones about your prescription. So uh, make sure you go check it out. Full of all kinds of good resources right there at KnowYourScript.org. Dr. Matt, you got a computer out. You flipped it up. What's going on? Well, so I wanted to bring up something uh, just along the lines of COVID and and exercise. So, you know, one of the things that everybody knows about you is that you've been uh, uh, a dedicated person to exercise during your recovery. I saw a guy at the gym this morning and he goes, you've been back. And I go, you know what, to be honest with you, for the past two years, I've been into the gym at least six days a week. And uh, it's very crucial and uh, to my recovery. It helps me feel good about myself. Uh, and, and I really enjoy the alone time. It's where I get up in my head and kind of figure out my day and have that self uh, dialogue and, and figure out what I'm doing right and what I'm doing wrong and where I need to move next. Definitely. And so I, you know, and we're promoters, uh, at least I am, I feel like we promote that idea that, you know, a healthy body is a healthy mind. So your mental health and your physical health are very much tied together. Anybody who's trying to feel better, whether you're overcoming an addiction or whatever, uh, exercise needs to be part of your routine. And I think you're a good example of that. And we've had several different uh, guests on the show who run exercise-based recovery program. So that's interesting. But I came across an, uh, an interesting article in uh, the British Journal of Sports Medicine uh, this last week. It actually just uh, came out on the 14th, so uh, a week ago. And uh, what they did is they actually looked at the activity levels, exercise versus non-exercise, of 48,000 People. That's a big case study. That's a pretty big case study, and uh, they 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 compared their uh, rates of COVID, and what they found is that the people who are regular exercisers, and that doesn't mean that you're hitting the gym hard every day, but it means that you're up and out of your chair and that you're spending, I think it was thirty minutes or more in sustained exercise every day. So that could be walking. Uh, but it certainly could uh, with sports medicine. They were also looking at people that do exercise a little bit heavier than the rest of us uh, are significantly um, more than 50 percent less likely to get COVID. So you, the healthier you are, the more robust. I think uh, as you read through the article, you'll see that their point is that the more robust you your immune system is, of course, mm-hmm. then the less likely you are or the less susceptible you're going to be to things like um viruses, including COVID. So I thought that was neat for people that are worried about COVID. What do I do to stay healthy? Um, Maybe I'm in recovery. You can double dip here. You can help your recovery 
by exercising and you can decrease your chances of getting COVID and other viruses by exercising. It's interesting you bring this up because I was actually talking to a guy at the gym the other day about this and he was referencing that kind of information that you just shared with us. And, you know, in the beginning, everybody thought gyms were going to be mega, mega spreaders where people right. would go in there because you're, you're sweating, you're breathing heavy, you're touching equipment. Uh, but as soon as the gyms opened, I've been back six days a week ever since they've been open. And to be honest with you, I've seen the same faces day in and day out for the past year. And there hasn't been a lot of people who have uh, left the gym because of COVID uh, mm-hmm. for the most part. And I used to think, I was like, this is crazy because everybody's talking about COVID and here I'm seeing the same faces and it's not really running rampant through this gym where I spend a lot of quality time with 30 to 60 people every day at the same mm-hmm. time. And then they come to your family, your gym family. You I don't know all their yeah. names, but I'd be like, hey, there's that guy that, you know, that does that awkward lift, but it's fun to watch. You know what I mean? <laughs> and it's, it's kind of cool like right. that. And see, this guy was telling me that, that, you know, the working out does help with your immune system. Yeah, it does. And I mean, that's actually, so you've just raised a, a research question. Mm-hmm. Your observation is that people in gyms are not getting sick as much. And that kind of makes sense with this sort of evidence would say that's a reasonable hypothesis. So now you've just given me assignment. I'm going to go out this week and try to find some articles. Is anyone doing research on people who go uh, regularly to the gym, use a gym, not just work out at home, but use a public gym and and their rates of COVID? So uh, hopefully somebody's done some of that research this uh, or at least surveying it this uh, year and I'll come back and tell you because that's what that's what's interesting like in that's what I like about a scientific method is you and I everybody we have our observations about things we make opinions but just because we see it doesn't make it true across the board so let's go grab some research but I would agree with that person at the gym because this this study definitely promotes the idea that um, exercise helps us stay healthier from viruses, including COVID. So I, I think that's neat. I like that. Now let's turn that back around and focus it in on recovery and addiction. Because the thing that I've noticed ever since Presley's letters came about, uh, I've been getting a lot more people reaching out to me, wanting to know about recovery, uh, whether it's helped with loved ones, it's helped with themselves or what. And people always look to me for the answers. And I always feel bad because I don't have the answers. I have my recovery, which seems to be doing wonderful for me, and uh, I can't complain one bit. But there's not to say that my recovery is going to work for everybody else. And so what we need to do is figure out what your recovery looks like, what you can agree to, and what you're willing to work for. And that's what this podcast is all about, is showing you that there's a million different ways up Sober Mountain, but the main thing that you want to do to get up there is you got to want that recovery. And we've got to be able to let people know that, you know, everyone's addiction is different. And there's all these different factors in whether you stay sober and if you succeed and how your life is going to look. But the one constant in your addiction is you. Right. And so only you really have the power to find your way into recovery. And you've got to figure out what works for you you. What makes sense to you? Because what makes sense to me in my spook alley of a mind is not necessarily going to make sense to you. The fact that I can go to a gym six days a week and have the ability to do what I need to be to do works for me, but it's not going to work for the person next to me. It might. Some of the stuff I do might help you, but some of it might be a detriment to you. The fact that I can go to a fraternity golf tournament where there's a lot of drinking, a lot of partying, and I don't feel triggered, I don't feel like I want to, it really helps my recovery. Because if I had to stay away from those things, then I feel punished. Then I feel like I'm not living. And I feel like I, I, I'm not doing my life the way I want to do it. But I'm not saying everybody should be able to go. There's not a lot of people that could go to a fraternity right. golf outing and be surrounded by partying and old friends who you've done stuff with and not feel triggered. Yeah. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I've worked a lot with people who uh, don't necessarily – I'm not a primary therapist for recovery people. But, of course, if you work with enough people, you work with people that are using at all different levels and in recovery. And one of the things that I'm often advising is – for a period of time, they need to at least take a break from being around people that are using because they can't handle that. 
They can't do uh, what is Ted Danzen from Cheers. They can't work in the bar and stay sober, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but some people can. And I think one of the differences is knowing yourself, knowing your own personality. You are uh, an optimist, so I think you believe you can do things, and you're an extremely social person. And so for you, not being able to be around your close friends and family would would be a punishment, and I think would be in some ways just as hard for you as staying sober, right? And so for you, being around those people, you gather energy that's positive. You're an extrovert. You're a people person. That's where you get your positive energy. So for you, being around your close friends and family, even if they're drinking, I think is a boost for you. Whereas somebody else, maybe more an introverted person, uh, that might be too hard for them. And they, they need to you know keep a safe, healthy distance, at least for a period of time, if not for a long time during their recovery. Um, I think a lot of people have taken a lot of inspiration from your story. Um, and I was thinking about this the other day. Your story continues, especially in the case of uh, the letter from Presley, continues to gain momentum. Hopefully people who listen to our podcast have gotten the Washington Post story and read that because I think they had a, an interesting, well-written piece on the, the dynamic between you and Presley. And I know you're now hitting the international stage. You're going to be on a television show in Australia talking about it, right? Yeah, we're going to do that uh, coming up this Sunday. And so I'll post that on our Facebook and social when it happens. But it really is, you know, I thought, well, this is, you know, I don't know where it can go from here, but well, it's open all kinds of avenues. I think the the thought I had, the new thought I had about that was, We've talked about the stages of change, pre-contemplation, contemplation, contemplation, determination, action, all of that stuff. And I really believe a lot of people are in that contemplation stage and they're trying to gather some motivation and some inspiration to kind of turn the corner and get to the action stage. And I think that's why your story has been, we've had so much feedback on Presley's letter because they're trying to get motivated. So if you're listening to this, take inspiration, but start getting active and experiment with things that other people do. If you don't know what to do for your recovery, start talking, asking, get advice that's professional, but start experimenting. Go go to different types of support and, and recovery groups. You know, try the gyms, Try, uh, you know, 12-step programs. Try meditation and yoga. Find something that works for you. If it's if what you're doing doesn't feel like it's working, don't give up on recovery, Mm-mm. right? F- go on to the next thing because when you find what clicks for you, then you're going to be able to stick with it much better than uh, people who try like a 12-step program and decide, well, that's not for me. Casey, you did the same thing. You felt like, well, 12-step seems to be working for these folks, but it doesn't really fit the Casey Scott personality does my recovery. I tell everybody is a buffet and it's a buffet where I walk down with my tray and I see something. I go, Oh, I like that. I'm going to take two scoopings of this. I like this. Oh, I tried this. I'm going to put that back because it didn't work for me. It didn't make sense. And so I'm kind of hodgepodge this recovery together that works for me. That makes sense. And I can always add to it and I can always take stuff that hasn't working, but my plate is always full at one time trying to keep it going. And another thing you talked about before we get to our guest today, who's got an amazing story to share with us is, you know, that pre-contemplation that you're talking about. Uh, because of Presley's letter and the increased attention on the podcast and what we do, I've had a lot more people reach out to me. And I often talk to them and they go, I don't know how this works. I don't know what I'm doing. And I go, you know, the fact that me and you are having this conversation means you're moving in a certain direction. Yeah. So you are in that pre-contemplation because two weeks ago, you wouldn't have even thought of me. You wouldn't have wanted to call me. Mm-hmm. You weren't willing to have this conversation. The fact that we're having this conversation means that you're thinking that something needs to be done. And so don't discount this because right. this is a move in the right direction. And I always tell people it took you a long time to get where you are. It's going to take you some time to get back to where you need to be. And a lot of people think it's a light switch or it's just an instantaneously turn off. And that's not how recovery works. You've talked to people who have been in recovery for 20 years and they're still learning. Nobody ever says they've got it because they say in recovery, once you say you've got it, it's the kiss of death. That's when relapses and all kinds of bad stuff can happen. So you just keep moving forward and you keep learning and that's all we can do. Yeah, it's that idea of becoming. Um, it's the journey for the psychology nerds out there. Carl Rogers talked about uh, a healthy life is one that's always becoming. You're always in the process of becoming who you want to be. Uh, you, you're never at, se- seeking an end to your development. And I think that definitely applies to 
the process of recovery. Our guest today is Brandy Vega. A lot of you might know her from her time as a TV reporter on ABC Channel 4, KJAZZ. She's uh, been prominent in the uh, media industry for the past 20 years, a good friend of mine. She's on today because, uh, sadly, her 12-year-old, about eight weeks ago, attempted suicide. And this was her second time doing so. And in a lack of knowledge and out of frustration she went to facebook and did a live and resonated with a lot of people much like presley's letter did right from the hospital grounds yep so she's here to share her story of hope inspiration and what we need to know about suicide you're listening to project recovery two years ago americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport there's desperation and anguish More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America, but this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Welcome back to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt. He's a clinical psychologist, and he got a new haircut. Yeah, trying to look a little more respectable. It was getting a little Just a little. It was getting out of control. Took a couple inches off? Uh, Probably like five, six. Well, yeah, looks good. It's, it's much shorter. You look respectable. And our guest today, Brandy Vega, she also got a haircut. Yeah, I did. It was something this week. Yeah, like, haircut yeah. week. Right. Yeah, yeah, welcome to haircut talk. Yeah, we're thanks. I'm so happy to be here to tell you about my split ends. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they, you don't have them now. You're looking good. <laughs> but you know, you're, you're smiling and you're laughing. But eight weeks ago, when you went to Facebook, you weren't smiling. You weren't laughing. As a matter of fact, it was probably one of the hardest times of your life. Ah, you're hitting me hard already. Just just going back to that moment was like one of the hardest moments of my life. For those who don't know, um, your 12-year-old daughter attempted suicide. Right. And this was her second time doing it. Right. She tried when she was 12 uh, and then eight weeks ago when she was 14. And I watched the video and I cried along with a lot of other people who did because I put myself in your situation not knowing what I would do, how I could help. And as a parent, all you want to do is help and fix a problem. But you didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. You feel so helpless. You feel so vulnerable. But I put my pride aside. The first time she did it, she was five minutes from dead. She had taken enough pills. She had put a bag around her head. And she finally came to just enough to stumble outside. And thankfully, it was a snow day. She would normally ride her bike to school. It was a snow day, and carpool came to check on her and pick her up. They got her. She started having um, seizures and convulsions and vomiting, and, and they rushed her to primary children's. And I was working on an NFL production in Provo, and I, I got here, and I was driving. And just the thought, never once in my life did I think she would be suicidal. And here's the thing, Casey. I attempted suicide at 12. I teach suicide prevention. I taught with the attorney general 10 years ago. In fact, a video popped up on my social media yesterday that I was going to speak to students about suicide prevention. Then to have that happen to you, it's it's like the hardest thing on the planet because you feel like such a hypocrite. I teach this. How did I miss this? But then you, the signs and the things that you look for are the signs and things that almost every single 12-year-old on the planet goes through. They're moody. Puberty, you know, starting junior high, they withdraw, they go to their room, they are moody, like all Anxiety. these things. I mean, it, I mean, yeah, that's what, you know, when you say that and you go, you just described every 12-year-old in America. Yeah. So I, w- I was looking at it and I knew she was doing some of these things and I'm reaching out, but I had no idea. That she was suicidal until I got the call and as I was driving there, I just knew. I was like, she over she overdosed. She attempted suicide. So we get to primary children. She's out of it for a couple of days. She took so many pills that affect her heart. She's vomiting blue. We don't know what's going on. This is the first time she comes to and we're just like, that's my little tiny baby I see there. This innocent kid that could never think about killing herself. Um we're there for three or four days. We go to uni for four or five days, and then she gets out, and we go to counseling once a week. They put her on medication. She hates the medication. She hates the counseling. We do them both for about four or five weeks. No, I'm good. I'm good. 
They taught us, ask her if she's okay. Fast forward two years, we think, okay, we, we learned a few lessons. We did not talk about it the first time. She says, Mom, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want anyone to know. And that's the hardest thing, too, because you're going through this. And I was in one of the biggest business deals in my career, and I'm trying to negotiate, and, and I'm sitting here just worried about my daughter, and people don't know what I'm going through. And that's one of the things I'm like, I'm always teaching, like, choose kindness because we don't know what anyone is going through. And I'm dealing with all of the feelings because you feel like such a failure. You feel like, how did this happen? I almost lost my daughter. What's the point of life? I I don't want to tell anyone because they're going to think I work too much. I'm not an active parent. I don't notice these things. Like, you just have this wave of emotions and you're like, I'm such a failure. And then she didn't want to talk about it. And people, you know, we put out, hey, Kai's Kai's in the hospital, pray for her. And then it's like, well, what's going on? What's going on? What's going on? I said, I'm not going to lie for you. I said, she had a reaction to medication, which was truthful. I just didn't need to tell it. But some people were so invasive. It was like the the hardest time of my life. And, And people who were wanting to be good were killing me, asking me all these questions. And I'm like, if I want to tell you, I'll tell you. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because... The stigma around suicide is much like the stigma around addiction. Uh, you know, you, you don't want to tell because you feel like you're failure. You feel like you're broken. She doesn't want to tell because she doesn't want people to look at her different. But in addiction and much like suicide, uh, if, if you break your leg, you go to the doctor. They fix your leg. Yeah. But you break your mind, you don't want to tell anybody. And right. we, we don't go get it fixed. And so you think that it's just going to mend itself. And I think that's evident when we're talking about your daughter. Uh, after six weeks, she goes, I'm okay. And now what? But uh, Dr. Matt? Yeah. Maybe I'll just jump in there on that. Just kind of share my perspective because I think it's a little different. And I think, Casey, you're doing a really good job of sharing the perspective about these things that, that is out there and most prevalent in the community. And that's the medical model. Of, of how we look at, at our, our healthcare, mental healthcare, physical healthcare. We all kind of put it in that medical model context, which is there's something wrong with me. I go to the expert, the expert fixes me, and then I'm better. And that works really well if you have a broken leg or if you have one of those sorts of medical conditions, for sure. Nothing wrong with the medical model. But as life has progressed over the last 25, 30 years, I think a lot of us in mental health, including um, you know, substance abuse counseling and, and teen suicide and all those things. We're moving away from this idea of medical model to a more comprehensive model or a developmental model. So I would say it's even harder for, for your daughter and, and kids growing up where they take on the medical model idea of I'm broken. There's something wrong with me. I'm broken. I need to be fixed. So I need to, I feel embarrassed about that, humiliated because it's not something I can have a cast for people to sign. Mm -hmm. And so they do hide it and they do keep it to themselves instead of looking at it as a developmental issue. And here we have a junior high school aged girl who's struggling with some mental health issues but she, for whatever her personality style, et cetera, is keeping it all in. She doesn't want to talk about it. And she hasn't developed the skill set and the emotional fortitude yet to be able to talk about it and to have self-understanding. But guess what? That's the challenge of that age. You know, kids don't really have that. No, None of us come with that. It's a developed issue. And so I would prefer to say a lot of us, all of us who are struggling with any sort of mental health issue – be it thoughts of suicide, substance abuse, depression, anxiety, perhaps looking at it as we're underdeveloped in certain ways is a much healthier and opti- more optimistic way of looking at it because then that says, well, this is a skill thing then. I don't have to be embarrassed. I don't have to feel humiliated. I can go out and say, I just need to develop those skills and then I'm going to feel better and function better. Sort of like I would if I wanted to play the piano or learn to sing or whatever it is. It's a skill set to learn how to understand my mental health. And so I would encourage people to try to make that shift in your mind. Because if you do, you'll automatically become much less judgmental about the people that are struggling with mental health issues in your community. Right. And she's finally able to talk about it. So the first time, she's a sixth grader. She's 12 years old. You know, you you look at your kid, but... There's seven, eight, nine-year-olds who are committing suicide, not just attempting. And there were literally, the night that I reached out for help on my Facebook video, which got over 11,000 views in just a couple of days, and I got hundreds of messages saying, I'm going through this, I've been through this, help, you know, all this stuff. Um, 
that night, primary children said, we don't have a bed for her. We have too many kids in the same situation. The doctor said that they had about 10 kids that day, that night in the in the unit who had attempted suicide. Wow. The next day, they said they had about another 10. I'm like 20 and 24 hour period of these kids that are coming in here. So with Kaya the first time, she would just shut down. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to think about it. Worst day of my life. And it was hard for me and my daughter. I'm a single parent. And um, then my friend's 15-year-old son committed suicide. And he hung himself. And I went to my friend's son's funeral and I made my girls go. I said, we're going to go to this. And it was about eight weeks after the first time. And we went there and I saw my daughter laying in the casket. And I saw myself standing up at the pulpit talking about her. And I saw my other daughter go up and talk. That's how it felt. It felt so real to me because just I was so close to losing her. And for the first time, like both my girls just sat there and cried. And we got in the car and we went for a drive. And we said, I said, we have to talk about this. I don't want to talk about it. I said, I don't care if you want to talk about it. Like we have to talk about it because it's not just you. I'm struggling. Your sister's struggling. And we cried and we yelled and we laughed. And and it was like for the first time we made progress, but because we could see it. And it's happening so, so much. So this time when it happened and I put it out there because I needed help right away. And I was scared to be vulnerable. I run a big company. I run a multi-million dollar business. Like I'm, I'm the single mom. I busted my butt. I'm in the army. I teach you know, all this self-defense. I taught suicide prevention. And now here I am not knowing what to do and not knowing how to respond and feeling like the greatest failure. Luckily, you know, it was the same situation. The first time we put a Band-Aid on a bleeding, gushing wound that needed surgery, that needed treatment for a long time. And we just didn't know that. So we put a Band-Aid on it and said, okay, I think we're okay. This time I'm like, we're not putting a Band-Aid on it. So she was at primaries for three or four days till she came out of it again. And we discovered a lot of dark things. I took her phone. I discovered a lot of things that had happened that were shocking to me. It was like, my kid is doing this. My kid is saying this. Alternate type personalities because you can be anything you want to be on social media. So we, we pulled all that, discovered a lot of things, cried a lot. She went to uni for 10 days. And from uni, we sent her to a, a day treatment for the next four weeks. And she just got out of that. I didn't send her back to her original school. I said, no, I don't want you with that same group. Like we're trying new things. So I made her start a new junior high last week and, and it's just been hard, but she's opening up about it. And, and so people called and said, Hey, can I bring you dinner? Hey, can we bring her cards and messages? Can we bring her balloons? And I was like, no, 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 no. She doesn't want to talk about it. And then I thought, wait a minute. No, this is the problem. We don't want to talk about it. I said, I I told her, Kaya, that didn't work the first time. I asked for help. We're talking about it. And so people came over and brought, you know, like a message from from girls in our neighborhood and in our church. And I was so afraid of how she would respond. And she was so thankful. And she read each one of those messages and she felt important. And the next neighbor brought balloons. And I was scared again because I'm thinking she's going to be mad at me for talking. And then finally, you know, just last week, we were asked to speak in our church, and I told her, speak on whatever you want. Take three to five minutes. And she got up there on her own accord and in front of our entire congregation, shared that she had attempted suicide. And everybody just wept. I mean, we had five people stop by our house after. I got probably 15 messages from adults and kids saying, I needed to hear this. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. And that's why I'm here. Because I've told you guys, I'm not dying to talk about this, but the, the, the less we don't talk, the more kids are dying. And so I, it's always like somebody should do something. Somebody should talk about that. Well, guess what? We have to be the somebodies. We have to step up. And I said, God, why me? Why would you give me this challenge again? And I kind of felt like it was like you didn't learn the first time. And so here you are again, and I'm giving you another chance, and that's why I'm sitting here. So thank you for having me on the show, because if our pain and our suffering can prevent another kid from losing their life or another parent, and it's not just the kids, it's husbands, it's grandmas. I, I'm in a spiritual care group. I, I do Nobody Dies Alone at the hospital. I've been doing that for six years, and I was talking about the first time, and there was a group in there with these other volunteers, and the one said, I just lost my best friend. He mm. was like 45. And once one person commits suicide in the family, statistics go up 50% that somebody else will. Well, the guy had his father living with him. His dad committed suicide. 
Six months later, his 18-year-old son committed suicide. And like three months later, he killed himself. And you just lost three generations in one batch. And I said at the time, because my older daughter, her and my younger daughter had gotten into a fight. And that's why she was going to kill herself. Was like, I'm depressed. I'm over it. And my older daughter said, if she would have died, mom, I would have killed myself. And I said, if you both would have killed yourselves, how could I live? I can't live like that. And it's just been hard. I mean, even just we're, we're getting help. But even just the other day. My oldest daughter's been in a relationship for like a year and a half and they broke up and she was so devastated and she's so sad and she's crying and she's living on her own and I couldn't get a hold of her. And then I heard a noise in my daughter's room upstairs and and I was down in the shower and I just cried because I thought, I don't know if I'm going to see either of my daughters in the morning. You know, you just feel helpless. What can I do as a parent? I don't know. And that's the struggle. It's like I live every single day just telling them how much I love them, trying to make each moment count because we don't know what we have, but we're doing the best trying to get the help and getting the medication. And even my mom, I love her to death, but she's like, don't put them on medication. I said, I'll do anything to keep them alive. So let me ask you this, because you asked the question, what can we do? I mean, what have you learned through this process? I mean, because – I mean. It's overwhelming. I can see it in your face. I can hear it in your voice. And and I'm putting myself in your shoes as you're explaining this. I've got three beautiful kids, and I don't know what I would do if if I lost one of them. Uh, You know, you often hear, you know, no parent should ever have to bury their children. Right. It should never happen. So the first thing I said, you remembered my video. What did I say? Go talk to your kids Mm -hmm. right now. Stop everything you're doing. Go talk to your kids and ask them point blank. Are you feeling suicidal? Are you having thoughts of ending your life? Are you cutting? We're just so afraid to have these direct conversations. And I literally, that video that had 11,000 views, I had hundreds message me and say, I went and did that and I had no idea my kid was suicidal. I've had parents who've checked their kids into it. I think the most important thing is to go talk to them about it and say, hey, listen, my friend just lost one of their kids or I've been reading about this. I love you so much. Please be honest with me. Have you been or are you suicidal? And if they say yes, then you say, okay, can we can we address that and go find help? But here's the frustrating part. So even and, – and you would know this, doctor. Like my my 17-year-old at the time, she had a car accident. She had a severe car accident right before my daughter's first suicide attempt. She got a TBI and, and a concussion. She missed almost two months of school. She was struggling. And normally I could snap her out of it with mom time and breakfast and shopping. You know, I couldn't snap her out of it. And I said, she goes, mom, I'm afraid I'm going to hurt myself. Mm. After a few days of just crying and crying and crying. So I said, okay, what do I do? I called Instacare. Can I bring her in? No, we don't see patients for that. But you can check this place. I call that place. No, we don't take them, but you can take her to this place. So I take her to a place in, in Ogden that was like behavioral health. I get there and they say, we don't take walk-ins and, and she's a minor. You need to go to the, the youth one. I go to the youth one. We don't take walk-ins. You have to go to the ER. I go to the ER, my fifth place. I go to the ER and I said, we need help. And they go, we don't treat this. It's a Friday. They said, our mental health expert isn't here. So we can set you up for an appointment in a week. I said, how does that help me now? That's why I'm here right now. Like, what can we do? In the ER, it's emergency. In the ER, yeah, and, and no help. So that so that is really like it's the hard thing. Problem. Unless they problem. attempt, and then they'll refer them to an inpatient. But without an attempt, they're like, well, you know, she'll have to see her, her regular doctor. I said, you can't prescribe her medication. You can't give me any tools, anything to help. Just don't let her out of your sight. For so the let's next ask Doctor Matt because you're a therapist, and I know that your guys is. Uh, client list has been packed since the beginning of COVID. Yeah. Access is a problem. Um, yeah, I work uh, with the University of Utah at, at Huntsman Mental Health Institute. Uh, and I'll tell you what, um, there are more, there's a bigger need than we have people to meet. Now, that's not an excuse. That is just what the numbers tell us. And this year, the need has gone up quite a bit. What can we do? Well, uh, a couple of thoughts. One is 
uh, it does start at home with direct conversations and and regular conversations. It's also important for parents to understand suicidal thinking or what we'd call suicidality is a spectrum issue. It is not a yes, I have it. No, I don't have it issue. And children and adolescents who feel desperate, depressed, awkward, weird on the outside, they've had a breakup, they, they've had a rejection from friends, they might be on that spectrum somewhere. And if you're used to talking to them, if you've opened that dialogue about their emotional self and helped them with, with that, um, they're more likely to confide in you as you regularly check in with your kids. Who else can help us? Well, actually, the pediatrician is a, a reasonable place to start and have that conversation. If you've had the conversation at home, you go in and you talk about that. Many pediatricians are very adept at, at those sorts of conversations, uh, sort of triaging the issue, uh, prescribing medication, and re- making a referral. If you have a referral from your me- your medical doctor, your p- primary care doc or pediatrician, you're going to get in faster. What else can we do? There are hotlines. And in fact, one of the things that formerly uni, now HMHI, has done is we have a hotline and a warm line. Right. And that's helpful because you you don't have to be on the verge of committing suicide to call in and be diverted to somebody who can help tr- talk you through the issue. Well, and the Safe UT app, the, the Safe, Safe UT, UT app is I, I another resource. That Kaya had been on there twice yeah. talking to somebody. You know, when I went through and looked at her phone, and and so I was glad that there was that resource. Yeah, but I think. Kids are afraid to tell their parents that. They're afraid to disappoint you. They're afraid to think you're crazy. And so having that right. conversation and saying, please, if you feel this you way. You have to destigmatize come. this issue in your home. Yeah. You have to destigmatize it for your children and for yourself, really yourself first. What do you think about mental health and suicide? That would be a wonderful thing for all of us adults who have children to think today. Well, what do I really think? What are my prejudiced ideas? How do I feel about it? Am I judgmental about this? You, you might be. Because that's the culture we grew up in. It's changing a lot. But, you know, when we were all, we're, Casey and I up. are older than you, but uh, yeah. when we were growing up, it's uh, it was a suck it up, rub it off, you know, walk it off kind of attitude. And, and the whole idea of someone's crazy if they da, 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 have these problems. You know, I would even so, take it a different level. When, when we were younger and people committed suicide, the general population and the consensus was is that person was weak. Weakness, you know, yeah, and, that's a and judgment. They took, the, they took the chicken way out, you know, and, and that's what it was. It was like, you know, you, you took the easy way out. And now from doing this podcast and in being in this world of recovery, I now know what somebody's going through where they think death is the best option. Well, it's an escapism thing. And that's, you know, the low end of the spectrum is I want to escape my problems. I feel desperate and hopeless. The world will be better I don't know how me. to do yeah. it. And then the brain starts to trick itself and think things like people would actually be happier if I wasn't around. But I want to get back. I'm not quite done on oh, the access issue. Also, you can walk in to a freestanding mental health hospital and get an evaluation like at HMHI. You can walk in, meet with a crisis counselor. Uh, They may not admit you, but they're going to go through the whole triage questions and try to help direct you to where you can get uh, some health care, some, some health care. Um, sometimes kids do need a day treatment program. Uh, HMHI has a day treatment program for kids and teens. Uh, um, so, uh, let's see, Wasatch Canyons is for. There was a lot of them, yeah, but they're, they're a whether lot. they take your insurance and whether they have openings so there, was yeah, tricky. How much it costs and if they have openings. But I would say we have a lot to do to improve on our end the people who provide mental health care to increase access. Uh, We struggle with being the, you know, having insurance companies deny (laughs) and us wanting to treat and there's a whole bunch of political issues along those lines. But walk into, if you don't know what else to do, walk into an ER, go up to Huntsman Mental Health Institute, walk in and say, my child's suicidal. I don't feel safe. We need an evaluation. And they will evaluate you. Whether you're admitted or not, there there are complicated factors. Are Is there a bed, yeah. et cetera. But, but don't assume that there isn't a way to get in and get treated. Right. No, and I, I think that's great. I mean, that's good to know because most people don't. And now 
people are coming to me because I've been vocal as if I'm some sort of expert. So I've started to do research. I've started to do some videos. I want to help. And you're the type of person that can make a bigger difference in a shorter period of time than folks like me. I'm, I'm behind the process. I'm, I have people, you know, the secretaries and all of that to get in to see me. And, and then of course I'm just one person and only have so many hours in a day. And, and all my colleagues are in the same situation, but a person with a, with a voice and the experience and the um, courage to talk about it will break down that stigma. That's the only way it's going to improve. That's the only way we're going to get more funding for yeah. more access is when people come together and they talk about it. We can't be afraid to talk about it. I think that's the biggest thing, Casey. So thank you for talking about it because as people started messaging me, I thought, oh, my goodness, you know, some of these people who I consider good friends, what, your husband attempted suicide and was in the hospital for three months? Not a mention. Yeah, no, you'd never Nothing. know because people know. are ashamed and I'm, they, I'm, they protect it. I'm doing, you know, these big events with business owners and it's like, your son committed suicide? And and I talked to him and his son all of a sudden one day wakes up with a migraine. It doesn't go away for three and a half years. He can't handle the pain. He shoots himself. Well, my mom deals with constant chronic pain and I came home that day after and I said, Mom, I'm worried about you. And I asked my mom, have you felt suicidal? And I discovered that my mom has these feelings too because mm-hmm. she's in so much pain that someday she doesn't know how she's going to get through the pain and doesn't see an out. So I took her to SeaWorld last week and I took her to California and I said, you know what, let's just live and, and have fun because so many people that you don't expect are going through pain you have no idea of. I want to ask you a question Um and it goes back to what you said at the beginning of this. You said uh, when your daughter was 12, she committed suicide. You were driving home from Provo. And then you mentioned that you, when we're 12, attempted suicide. Dr. Matt, like alcoholism and drug abuse, can say that it's kind of gene-related. Is suicide in the same category as that? Uh, there's a herit there, there's an a herit, I guess. heritability factor for sure, and um, and I think it it doesn't it stems back more to emotional stability within the individual, depression within the individual, just like we inherit tendencies towards our height and weight and eye color, uh, we also inherit tendencies uh, towards how we process emotion. Um, depression and anxiety run in families. And so, yes, uh, families that have higher rates of emotional instability and depression just by nature are going to have higher rates of suicidal thinking, suicidality and, and, and attempts as well. So it can run in, run in the family, sure. See, but I haven't had a single suicidal thought since I attempted at 12. It was like for almost a year, I was, I mean, I had every sign you could possibly think of. I I wanted to be dead. I hated my life. I wrote about it. I talked about it. And then I attempted it. And in the middle of my attempt to overdose and cut my wrist, I had cut. I had taken half the bottle. And then all of a sudden I heard a voice say, your mom can't handle this. And I just thought of my mom walking in and finding me there. And it's like, if I couldn't love myself enough, at least I love my mom. And this is what I tell my daughter. On the moment you don't love yourself enough to live, love your little brother. Love me. Love your gram. Like fight through that moment and let us know. And we'll be there. I said day, night, any time, any time. They have to know you're there for them at all the times. Let me ask you this. Do you think, and this may be a hard question to answer, did your, the fact that you went through that as a 12-year-old, did it, make you more or less aware of your own children's mental health issues? Meaning sometimes when we go through really hard times, we, we sort of go into a denial place. Like I don't, I don't want to deal with that. Or did it make you kind of hypervigilant? I'm a pretty even down the road kind of person. Like I'm, I'm, I'm a very strong independent person that can fight through anything. It's like, whatever you give me, I'm going to fight through. I think going through that gave me an appreciation that even I could go through that, but I could overcome that because from that moment on, I never had that. I mean, depression, anxiety, yeah, stressed, fear, anger. Yeah, I've had those things over the course of my life, but I never felt so low or so desperate to want to end my life. So as I, as my kids got to that age, I thought I was being aware and then I thought I was paying attention to their mental health. They're so good at, at hiding things. I found out later, too, my, my oldest daughter at the time at 16, she got access to one of my firearms. 
I had no idea. She knew my safe code. I thought she was safe. And she didn't attempt, but she contemplated it and didn't go through with it. Thank heavens. But learning this stuff, it's like, I've changed everything. I keep things locked up. I keep an eye on them. I'm okay with medication. I want to talk about it. I'm okay getting help. And I just want all of us to talk about it because I'm not a failure. You're not a failure. If you've lost somebody, you didn't fail. And if if you've attempted, you aren't a failure either. It's just... It, it it's an it's an issue that we have in in our brain and it can be treated like you said with the right help so i'm asking kaya now just in the cart hey hun do you think your medication's working how does it make you feel well mom i'm i'm you know i'm feeling better okay well how was your day do you have any friends no i sat alone again how does that make you feel well i'm just accepting it radical acceptance like her whole attitude and demeanor and i will say while i have the opportunity Check your kids' phones, check their social media, and you know what? Get them off. Get them off of social media. I just think even for adults, it's like there's so much good, right? I build my business through social media. I do videos and all, all this stuff. That's how I do it. But kids' brains aren't developed for this, and, and there's dark dark things in comparison. I mean, even studies show that in the last 10 years, suicide's gone up almost 60% in the youth, and a lot of that is attributed to Social media. There was a girl overseas, 16 years old, said a question on her Instagram, should I kill myself? 69% of her so-called friends said yes. Whoa. She killed herself. And now they're saying, well, should we charge these kids? You know, where's where's the line? And yeah. so the, the desensitization or, of human life, of our worth, we're comparing ourselves to everyone else. We're being influenced by people who don't even know us. Who don't even really care about us or have a relationship and that's what we're putting our value on on us and especially the kids they don't know how to do it even adults we struggle with it you bring up so many good points and and i think that the number one takeaway that i'm going to get from this is talk to your kids know your kids i think a lot of us think we know our kids and we spend a lot of time with them but how well do we really know our kids i know after this i'm going to go sit down and i'm going to talk with my kids I'm going to talk with them individually. I'm going to talk to them as a group. I'm going to take a look at their social. I do try to do that as much as I can, but sometimes life gets in the way. And I'll be honest with you, uh, you know, I, 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 I preach about talking about recovery and addiction to everyone I know, um, but a lot of people don't think it's going to happen to them, just no. like addiction. And I think suicide's the same way. I, you know, that, that happens to other people. That hasn't happened in our family. We're, we're too close. We're too tight. Are you? Right. And, and ask the other hard questions. Are you drinking? Are you vaping? Are you doing drugs? Are you having sex? Ask your kids these hard questions. You're going to be surprised at the answers you get. And they're talking the about think, it on their social media. So. Yeah. So they're, they're, they're going to talk to you about it if you have the courage to talk to them about it. So one of my friends, real quick, you're she, good. No, you're good. she has a, her son just turned 21 and she posted on there. I challenged him when he was young. If you get to 21 without drinking drugs or, or like smoking, those three things, she goes, I'll give you $1,500. And so she started a fund for this and it was a challenge for them. And when he turned 21, he came to her and he never did it. And she actually gave him $2,100. And I thought, man, this is a great thing because one of my best friends turned to drugs at 17 and now she's on the street and she's lost her mind and she doesn't know what's going on. And so I look at my kids and I think with suicide, with, with drugs, with alcohol, give them a challenge and talk openly. I gave that challenge to Kai. I said, hey, if you make it to 18 without ever drinking, without ever trying drugs or smoking or having sex, Things that are going to mess you up as a kid. I said, I'll, I'll give you $1,000, which I know not everybody can do that. But I'm saying like a trip. I'll take you on a trip. Yeah. We'll do this. Like offer some incentive. And then, you know, I said, and if you make it to 21, we'll do this. Because that is a small price for me to pay to keep my kid out of addiction, to keep my kid out of some of these things. And I know it doesn't prevent it, but yeah. it does help. No, no, no. I actually, I'm, I'm going to try to break that down. <laughs> I, I, I think having the incentive makes it fun. And gives them maybe something to work for. Of course, who wouldn't well, want? Well, it gives them an 22, excuse. 000. Like, no, I can't drink. I have a bet with my parents. So it gives them an excuse. Sure, that's good. But I think the salient factor there is now you have an open door to talk about it all the time. You're they're working towards it. You're talking about it. That makes it kind of a fun excuse to talk about it. And I think it's the talking about it. If you look at the research, it's the talking about it. It's the being connected with your child. 
uh, that makes all the difference in the world. So, yeah, that's a fun way to do it. Sure. I also want to remind everybody why we had you on today, because unfortunately in the recovery world, a lot of people end their lives by suicide because they see it as their only way out. So I think a lot of the information that you're sharing can be used for our listeners as well. And there's some great resources out there. And I know you were frustrated by it. And I think Dr. Matt showed us some good ways to do it. But recently, uh, there's a new number. It's called 988. And uh, it's implemented now. It's up and running. Uh, it's much like 411 or 211. All you have to do is hit 988. And when you hit 988, you will automatically be connected with somebody uh, that can help you in your situation, walk you through, and figure out where to go. But there's also the Suicide Prevention Hotline, which is 1-800-273-8255. And you mentioned it earlier, and we've had them on our, our show. Uh, it's the Safe UT app. And uh, it's an app that you can download on your kid's phone. You can download it on yours. And if you need to talk to somebody, if you're having thoughts, if you're not sure where to go or what's going on, it's a great way to open up the door for conversation. It's anonymous, and you can get help, and a lot of people in Utah are using it. And, and uh, texting instead of having to call if you I'll don't want to call. throw one more number out there for the crisis line at Huntsman Mental Health that will get you either to the, the crisis line or the warm line is 587 801 Five eight seven three thousand. Yeah, there are there are great resources, Casey, and I think we just we have to talk about it. We've got to destigmatize it. And I would say, B, I know that there is a difficulty in just getting right into to somebody that can be a good doctor therapist for you or your child. But be patient with the process. Stick with it. Use the the resources that are available until you get in to see the doctor. But but, but be patient. Don't give up. And for anybody like on social media and stuff and with your own family, check on your buddies. Check on your friends. Hey, how are you doing? Are you feeling okay? How's your mental health? Those are okay questions to ask. And if you're feeling it, reach out to me. Reach out to your friend and just say, man, I'm really depressed right now. Can you talk to me? Can we go get a drink? Can we go grab lunch? Like, Don't be afraid to reach out because I guarantee you that we would all rather talk to you than view you at the service and, and miss you and your life is valuable. I've lost probably five friends this year from suicide in the entertainment industry. People who just, you know, like work and depression and things you can get through. And I think if if I had gone through with my suicide at 12, I wouldn't have my kids. I wouldn't have my experiences. I wouldn't have this beautiful life of things. And it, and it does get better. And that's what I tell Adia, my oldest, all the time. Honey, so far you have survived 100% of the bad days you've been through. And there were some days you thought you could not get through them, but you did. And you're here. And so if you feel like you're having a bad day you can't get through, remember all that you have been through and reach out to somebody. Go be with somebody. Don't be alone. It's not worth it. I promise you, whatever you're dealing with, it will get better. And it is worth it. And you are worth it. And people love you. You just have to keep fighting. And don't hold it in. You're not broken. You're not a failure. And I think prevention is uh, is the best possible thing we can prepare ourselves for because much like you, in the moment of crisis, you're outside Primary Children's Hospital, you don't know what to do, uh, and so you're trying to f- do whatever you can. But if we can have these conversations beforehand, if we can have the suicide hotline next to our phone, if we can program it in our kids' phones, if we can have these open conversations, you know, make it a once-a-week check-in or once-a-month check-in where you sit down and go, hey, look, I know this isn't the best thing for you and it's not exciting for me to do it, but I need to know where your head is. I need to know what's going on with you and it's you know this is my job as a parent is to provide and protect you and if i don't know everything that's going on it makes my job extremely hard and i'm here to be a resource for you and so i know i'm going to implement that into my family and uh, make sure that they know that they are loved and i think that's what we need to do dr matt well i would echo that sentiment for sure um I guess I'm sitting over here itching about something you brought up before, and I know we're wrapping things up, but no, let's go. it's a relevant question that comes up a lot when I talk with parents that are in your position of having a child or children in the home that have been suicidal. Um, you mentioned that you have guns, mm-hmm. and you mentioned that it sounds like you're responsible with them, you have a, a safe. Have you thought about removing the guns for a period of time from your home, even though you have a safe? Part A. Part B, do you have a safe for your medications? So I've been doing foster care through the state for five years. So I had set up my home to have locks for medication. What my daughter took was over-the-counter. Right. So not all the medication. She took sleeping pills. And parents need – I'm glad you bring that up because 
or there are there are several, and I'm not going to put ideas in anybody's head. A very lethal over-the-counter medications taken in large quantities. And so if you if you buy the Costco-sized bottle of whatever, uh, I think those need to go in the lock box yeah. as well. And and it's easy, even, even just putting them in a closet and putting a lock on that and keeping the key. You know, things like that, yes. And guns, um, I didn't take them all out of the house, but I did, I changed combinations, and I have two safes. I have one that has ammo. I have one that has firearms. Separately. I, mm-hmm. Yeah, because, I mean, I teach this for the state. And, and I know suicide by firearms is, is a big problem because you get um, impulsive. Well, there's and it's no like, coming back. The lethality is obvious. And I didn't mean to put you on the defensive. I, I appreciate the fact that you teach gun safety and, you, no, and, well, and you've thought about that. I just wanted to know what a person who, who owns guns and has – and I, by the way, I'm a gun owner – but, you know, I, I wanted to know somebody who teaches gun safety for the state and does that sort yeah. of thing, how they would look at it. I will tell you my general advice to parents is you re, even if you have a safe, you remove those guns to a, a different location uh, be, just because of the lethality. But I, I understand what and, you're saying. And I've taken firearms from friends and put them in my safe when they were feeling unsafe mm-hmm. or depressed. Mm-hmm. I said, you know what? Let me come over. Why don't you give me your firearms? Let me store them for a while until we get you on track. So I agree with that. And and we went through this. And then we even had this conversation because my daughter goes, well, mom, I see some, you know, I, I see a pill over here. I see a butter knife. I see the razor because we were cutting stuff. I see yeah. this. And I said, you know what? Here's Here's the deal. At the end of the day, you can die by drinking too much water. You can die by holding your breath. I mean, there's so many different things. Right. That, I'm just saying there's things that people can do. So as a parent, you can't live in fear every single day that you're not preventing it. Like I'm trying my hardest, but then I also have to turn it over and say, I love you. I want you to live. I will do everything in my power to help you live. But you have to understand that some things you can't control. I can't control when she you know, walks out the door if if she's going to stay on the sidewalk, you know, so there's a part of it where you just have to go like the other night when I said, man, I have her door open, but I'm not up there sleeping with her. There's a lot of things that could happen. We can't live in fear as parents. I agree with you. And I think education and having a plan and having communication that's meaningful with your children will remove that fear and, and kind of usher in a feeling of acceptance. We have to accept the fact that we can't control everything, nor should we for our kids. They need to learn to be resilient and we can model that to them and, and we can guide them to resilience. But we can't protect them from everything, and right. and it's sort of a tricky balance as a parent, right? Because I, I mean, you, you bring put, up a good point that you know guns and pills are very lethal. But you know, I've I've known kids who have um, used things around the house. I won't mention them <laughs> that you wouldn't think of as objects to attempt suicide. Right. So so that we can't we can't bubble wrap our kids. But um, we I think education about mental health. Um, honesty with your children and directness and some level of a plan measures where we do reduce the, the lethality in our home of objects that could yeah. be used impulsively. You mentioned that, uh, I'm almost 50. So my impulses are pretty low these days, but when, when you're a kid, your impulses are high and right. we have to count, we have to take that into account. And same and reason than, we baby proof our house, you know, right. I mean, you go through and you put the court, the edges on and you put yeah. the lock gates and you do the door guards, At least they might still kid. fall down and break their tooth, yeah. you know? Like there's still things, but you want to make it as safe as possible. And that's what we've tried to do. And not just a safe environment, but a safe emotional Emotional. environment Mm -hmm. for them to come to me and an opening and an acceptance to say, you know what? I love you no matter what. It's okay to tell me you feel this way. I'm not going to be mad at you. I want to help you. And more than anything, I just want to thank you for coming on the show today because um, you're taking your grief and pain and doing something with it that will help others. It does empower other people. Look at the response that you've gotten just in the short period of time that you've been really vocal about this issue. And that, more than anything, helps the rest of us who are trying to provide services um, to do it because it reduces stigma. It brings people in. And you know what? Even though uh, mental health is pretty busy these days, we're not too full. So come on in and get the help. Reach out. And I appreciate you taking that on as as, uh, 
a quest for you and your family. Well, thank you. And I appreciate you sharing your story today. I know a lot of people are thinking uh, this isn't our typical podcast, but I think it's all about recovery. And it's recovery for you and it's recovery for your daughters and it's recovery for everybody. And that's what this is about. So thank you for sharing. Learning coping. Yep. Yeah. It's learning all of those coping skills. One last thing. My, both my girls now are talking about it. And you know what? I love that they're talking about it because when when you open up and you address it, one, it gives you accountability and it gives you courage. And now they might want to fight a little bit harder to help peers because people are coming to them saying, hey, I saw your story and I struggle with this, too. So, again, please open the conversation. Thank you for having me. Thank you for sharing your story. And this is very much like addiction. We're going through it and we're just all trying to do our best to like figure out how to cope, how to manage, how to treat it, how to learn, how to grow and succeed. I love it. Thank you for listening today. This is Project Recovery brought to you by our friends at knowyourscript.org. Don't forget, Project Recovery is a KSL podcast. of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.